Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with the CEO and co-founder of Flat World Integration, a deep tech firm leading the way with industrial-grade data sharing platform for the digital economy. Her and her husband powered through more than 12 years of R&D to have this company come to the marketplace. So clearly they're patient. And so you get the sense that she has stamina, she's determined, and that's evidenced by what it really took for Flat World to really be out in the world. Kim Chandler McDonald was born in the UK, grew up in Bermuda and Barbados, moved to Canada, and then back to the UK, and now lives in Australia. So that's why I get along with this woman. We love to travel the world. So you can gather from this global perspective that this is what she really marries onto every project and every board that she's on. So as an award-winning author of many books, including Innovation, How Innovators Think, Act, and Change Our World, you can see why she is sought after as a board member and thought leader on disruptive approaches and transformational trends. And these include the Enterprise Board, Enterprise, sorry, Board of Griffith University, the Australia New Zealand Board in AI. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. The Australia New Zealand Women in AI Board, because that's an important distinction. And the Paris-based Cybersecurity Advisory Network. So as a passionate activist, she got a little swallowed up by the shores of Sydney when she first moved to Australia. And it was when she created Postcards from Tomorrow to bring awareness to lose place. Sydney's only daytime drop-in center for female victims of domestic violence, that she began to feel like herself again. Contributing and collaborating in community is so important to her. And you can sense the purpose she now feels with her heart centrally back on deck. So thank you for this. I'm excited, Kim. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready, ready, ready. Okay. So look, People are going to get this, but you're full of vibrancy and make a differentness. Like I made up a word for you. So I like that. <laughs> literally, I was like, oh, make a differentness. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about, you know, when you, that began showing up for you in the early days when you're growing up in the Caribbean. Yeah, I think um, honestly, it showed up pretty early and it's been a running theme, if you will. Um, so the first time I can remember doing a make a differentness was when I was about, I think I was about five or six. Um, You know, those ages are a little vague for me, 
but I do remember that it was Easter time in Barbados and I was really excited um, because obviously things were going to be on for kids, you know, it's Easter break, yay. And I went looking in the local newspaper because I wanted to see what movies I could go and see and there was nothing, you know, it was all, I think it was, I don't know, like Glass Tango in Paris or thing, you know, it was crazy. It was very much adult focus, which mm. I guess is understandable in one context because, you know, Barbados, like, like Bermuda, uh, they're, they're, they're tourist islands, essentially. Mm. Uh, so everything is really set up from that kind of perspective rather than from uh, the perspective of what would kids like to do. Mm. Well, I got indignant. I got tremendously indignant. And rather than just stomp around as I... I'm sure was want to do, I decided to write a letter to the editor and uh, managed to get something changed. And they brought in some, some movies for kids, which was great. Unfortunately, by that stage, I had actually gone to visit some family in Bermuda. So I didn't actually get to see them, but I had done something for my community mm. and boy, that felt good. And yeah, that's, that's just been a, a theme throughout. Make a different business. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hey, that's so early on. Um, I often wonder, you know, if you hadn't have succeeded in it, would you have kept going? So um, would you say that one make a difference led to another make a difference and it just kind of, you know, you kind of jump along on those rocks like that? Maybe. Yeah. At that stage, I don't know that I was doing it from a position of altruism, if you will. I was just cranky. So certainly cranky led to cranky. Um, I'm one who doesn't let cranky lie. You know, I really believe that, you know, I call myself an activist, but the root word of that is active. You know, it's, it, it, you, you have to do something. It's a, for instance, I say the same thing about innovation. You know, it, it, to innovate is to do something. So it's, it's not about pontificating. It's not about um, having talks and, and, you know, coffee clutches and, 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 and discussing about what we should do, do it. Don't discuss it, do it. So mm. that, I think that has just been the imperative. It's always to do, to do, to do. Yeah. Okay. So let's make a pact, me and you in this conversation that we give my, you give me and the audience a doing, you know, when we leave this conversation, you Ooh. know, because I think that's, that's going to be your gift to everyone is, Hey, let's, let's have a chat, but then let's actually do something. Let's have something change because we've had this talk. Fantastic. I would love that. Yeah. So what do you think growing up in so many different countries has left you with? Um, I think it has left me with an immense curiosity for other people. I think that it has left me knowing that, um, Everyone, regardless of where you're from, regardless of what you look like, everyone has a story, which is probably immensely interesting, but it may be because your, perhaps your, your first language isn't English, that you may not find it easy to tell your story. So it left me with a real drive to enable that. And that I think is one of the things I do in, I think all of my books really, is I, I find people who I find interesting, but who either um, aren't known at all to the, the general public, or they may be known, but they might not necessarily be able to tell their story, uh, which is amazing and, and immensely interesting, but doesn't necessarily use um, a vocabulary that that is, 
uh, not it's not so much that it's not interesting, but it it, it doesn't hook with the general public. And so I I feel that that's my job is to really um, enable that. Um, I think being born in Britain, I was able to at, at the time I was born, um, and I will leave that to your imagination. Um, I was given the permission by the government to have as many passports as I wanted. So essentially, um, as long as I didn't vote in a national election, I could collect passports and I have done. But being an activist, not being able to vote in national elections has been something that I'm acutely aware of. It's, it's really given me a heightened awareness of, of the rights and the responsibility of voting. So I uh, have done things like set up organizations when I was living in Europe called Yank a Yank to the Polls, where I, I urged global citizens who had friends and family in the United States, I, I urged these global citizens to urge their American family and friends to vote. Oh. Because I feel it, it, it's, it's particularly what happens in, in the US um, at, any, at any point, um, is very important in how we move forward as a as a global community um, and that i think it has never been more true than it is now hmm. i think um growing up in canada where i spent the majority of my younger years um oh wow in so many years that was such a blessing i mean it it, it was Canada is where I, I really gained my, my inherent understanding of and, and real belief in social democracy, you know, the, the right of an individual to be part of the common wealth of a nation in a true sense. So your right to education, your, your right to healthcare, your right to a fair start in the world. Um, and and I, I really got that from Canada along with an immense respect for First Nations and their connection to their communities, their lands and their waters. And that really, if you, if you would indulge me, that really became cemented for me this year, actually, when I was asked to do uh, an acknowledgement of country. And I realized that wow. I wanted to do an acknowledgement to all the traditional owners of the lands that I had lived and grown in, you know, th those, those lands that where I grew to be who I am. So if you don't mind, I'm going to do that now. So, um, oh, yeah. I would, I would like, like to, so excited. is that okay? So, so I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. They're the traditional owners of the land on which I work, live, play, and love. And I, I would pay respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I was raised and had the honor of visiting as I grew into who I became. These include the Ichiroganean, Arawakans of Barbados, the West Bank Nation of the Okanagan Valley, the Doig First River Nation, the Liard Nation of the Yukon, and the Squamish Lilliwatt Nation, which encompasses the Whistler and Environs. So our first do, if you will, is I would ask oh, listeners to look at where they are and where they come from and acknowledge not only where they are, but who was there first. And if you can learn not only who they are, but how to pronounce their name properly, that alone shows such respect. Uh, and is, it, it takes very little time and, and a Google will take you there. 
Can I ask you, this is really beautiful, by the way, um, because I've just been on a journey to the Waka Waka region um, and learning about, um, she told me how to say it properly because it's spelled Willy Willy is her mom, but it's not said like that. Wiley. Oh, I wrote it down like hyphenated so I could say mm -hmm. it better. Um, and I learned so much about tribe and I want to ask you, what do you think the value of knowing who walked the land before us is? Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I think by knowing you can acknowledge and by acknowledging you begin to create a relationship of respect. Mm -hmm. And when we see how tremendously divided we all are, any, any bridge that we can begin to build is a positive. And, I, and I'm not saying this from a, a, a kumbaya kind of position. I, I really do think that to live in a fully functioning, safe world, we really have to start respecting one another. And um, <laughs> that the other thing is, to be honest, a lot of the traditional uh, tools and, and, and technologies, if you will, worked really well. And when you look at what's happening with the climate and the environment right now, it probably isn't a bad thing for us to um, learn from some of the traditional elders and, and, and um, First Nations. Yeah. Wow, that's so that this is so cool. I love this conversation because yeah. you've written a lot about innovation, mm. and yet we're talking mm. about the the things that worked well before. How do you connect the past and what has worked well and innovation? Um, well, look, uh, there. I think there are two different types of innovation. First of all, there's the innovation to survive, that, that is necessary to survive. Mm -hmm. And then there's the innovations that help us to thrive. Mm -hmm. So innovations to survive include from the very basic of, you know, when we learned how to make fire. Mm -hmm. um, that those are the things, the, the common innovations that have enabled us to become the society and societies that we that we currently are innovation to thrive has to build on that and mm -hmm. it may be that um, we are we are about to see a huge shift in innovation because we are in very precarious times and what has been working, you know, when you think about it, we're, we're exploding, as my husband, pardon my language, my husband says, we're still exploding dead shit to move cars around. What the hell is that about? And he's right, you know, there has, there has been such little innovation in so many arenas that we still take as, as, a, as a given. So there, I think we're at a period where there is going to be huge innovation for us to thrive but we're now circling back and it's also for us to survive. So we've kind of gone full circle in that, you know, um, we're, we're in a pretty um, delicate position with regards to the ramifications of what we've done as innovators to thrive. Yeah. To the planet. Now, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now we've kind of got to take that knowledge, that capability 
and figure out how we're going to survive. The earth will be fine. You know, it's gone through all kinds of things. We, we need to survive, or at least we want to. And I don't know if these are related, but I feel like I want to ask you about, you know, this board position, um, the Australia, New Zealand women in AI board, because it feels sort of like, is that a full circle moment? Or tell me a little bit about this connection. I don't know. I really wanted to make sure I said that properly and say women in AI. Was that important? And why are women important in this sphere? Tell me. They're critical. Absolutely critical. So the problem with AI is that it is incredibly biased. Um, AI takes data, 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 and it just kind of extrapolates out from that. Hmm. But if all the data has been put in by middle-class white guys, then it really only can extrapolate from that. So it's imperative, A, that there are there is diversity that comes into the industry. Given the increasing influence that AI has on our societies and therefore our individual lives, it is above and beyond time that there is an exponential escalation in the number of women who are in the industry if we're going to increase the potential for positive transformational change. The, the need for diversity of experience, expertise and engagement is critical. And, and as AI changes the face of society, so too women have the power to change the face of AI. And, and the Women in AI organization, it's, it's in a perfect position to recognize and celebrate and, and support these women who are really imperative in bringing clarity, capacity, <laughs> empathy and and possibilities to the AI industry and and therefore to the industry sectors and organizations that are increasingly reliant upon AI's current capabilities and future promise. Yeah, like I, has Melinda Gates just put in like a crap load of money in this space? Like she's not calling it women in AI, but she's calling it, is it more women in technology or she's just... Look, really focus. Having yeah. more having more women in tech is is absolutely imperative. The only reason mm-hmm. that we're really pushing AI is that it is yeah. having immense detrimental effect now. So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, with facial recognition, which is pretty much run by AI, if the only mm-hmm. data that goes in from these middle class white guys is around middle class white guy facial features then if you're other in any way, you don't get recognized. If you don't get recognized, you may not be able to pass through security systems. You know, may not be given entry into buildings. Um, you may be targeted by um, police forces who make mm-hmm. assumptions based on this data that you are X instead of Y. And this is happening now. And what's frankly terrifying is that, for instance, the algorithms that are being used now are only taking in a fraction of the data out there. And one has to accept that they're taking in the nice data, as it were. When they open it up as they want to, to the entirety of the internet, and the cesspool (laughs) that that is, you know, like the pornification (laughs) of women, you know, 
it's important. Well, it, 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 it's going to leave us in a position of, of um, much less power. And I think mm. um, the potential for degradation is, is um, immense. This conver- I just love that we are talking about not anything we thought we were, but it's like so much better. Um, I just need to call you a data activist, first of all. Um, I just recognized why you're so important in this industry area. Um, but I think we need to catch people up a little bit. So tell people a little bit about Flat World and the problem that it solves. We're going to give, we're contextualizing this data activist okay. for a sec. So tell me a little bit about Flat World, what it solved, and why you persisted for 12 <laughs> years in research and development I on stubborn. it. Stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Yeah. Uh, let stubborn. me address the first part of your question first, because it goes a long way mm-hmm. to answering the second two parts. So the bottom line is that there is an exponentially increasing amount of data and it's going to lots of different places and no one has control over it. So Flat World solves that problem and we address it from three different angles, from cyber, from control and from compliance. So Mm. data is not the new oil. There has always been data, maybe not this much, but there has always been data, but trust across that data, that is the new oil. So without accurate, actionable data at scale, you are not able to service your customer or your client effectively. And what that means is brand damage, huge fines, job loss, and potentially criminal charges. They're all potential results of a failure around this. So the technical mechanism of data sharing, to be honest, is not that difficult. That, that's not what took us 12 years. That, like there's literally hundreds of vendors that allow you to share data. But we looked at data from a different perspective. And that was that data ownership is pivotal to effective collaboration. And that implies that we solved all of the other issues, the cybersecurity, the business control over the data and the local national and international compliance and regulatory re- uh, requirements. Huge. We believe that this is pivotal to solving all of these things, and they had to all be solved at once. Otherwise, you would end up with a fragmented mess and the frequent data breaches that we are seeing. So let me give you an example, which you might have read about this week. It's the FireEyes hack that that breached dozens of high-value private and public sector targets who use solar winds technology. So solar winds clients include, and this, your eyes, I think will get, so solar winds clients include AT&T, Cisco, Ericsson, Ernst & Young, the Federal Reserve Bank, Gartner, the Gates Foundation, Harvard, the Kennedy Space Center, Lockheed Martin, MasterCard, Microsoft, the New York Power Authority, San Francisco International Airport, Siemens, Smart City Networks, the CDC, the US Air Force, the US Department of Defense, the US Postal Service, the Secret Service, NASA, and even the Departments of Treasury and Commerce. And these hackers, they've been in the systems of these, of whichever of these clients 
were compromised. We can't say they all were, so that's not what I'm saying. But the hackers have been in the compromised systems since March, taking data. A lot. What? A lot of data. And a lot of data. And they've been covering their tracks expertly. So because their tracks are covered, no one knows what's been taken. And so they have no idea what's at risk. So there are a lot of headless chickens running around right now. Now, blows your mind. Flatworld actually addresses and mitigates that risk because it enables you to have full transparency across the data lifecycle at a granular field level. So in a form, every everything, Mr. Jane Smith, it's three fields. So every single one of those is encrypted separately. So you have control over what's done with your data. You control who has access to it and you know exactly what was and what was not done with it. And because all of the data is individually encrypted, even if for instance, somebody stole your hard drive, they would have to throw a quantum computer at every single field to attempt to gain some access to it. So it's, it's, we, we see it as truly state of the art. We call it uh, uh, frontier technology. So because the cybersecurity and business control enabled out of the box, you're able to be compliant with compromised systems since March, taking data, a lot of data. And they've been expertly covering their tracks. And because the tracks are covered, nobody knows what's been taken, and because they don't know what's been taken, they don't have any idea what's at risk. And so there are a lot of headless chickens running around out there right now. But Kim, my question, like a little question for the average person, mm-hmm. would they need that much security? And like, who is Flatword really right. targeted? So we, we are, our clients are medium to large size enterprises, right? And they are the people essentially who have your data. And they need, because of the laws that have have been coming up and the legislation out of, for instance, California to Europe and Australia is bringing forward uh, data data rights protection, they need to be able to prove, A, that they have control of your data so that if you say, I want you to tell me what data you have, they can do it. They need to be able to prove that if you say, I don't want you to have that data, get rid of it. And that that they can prove to you they've done this, but mm. also they need to prove to you that the that the data is safe. Mm. So Flatworld addresses those risks, if you will. It, it it enables full transparency across the data lifecycle at a granular field level. So you have control over what's done with your data. You control who has access to it, and you know exactly what was done and what wasn't done with it. And because all of the data is stored, um, it, it's encrypted individually. So even if someone stole your hard drive, they would literally have to throw a quantum computer at every single field to attempt to gain access to it. So because the cybersecurity and business control that's enabled by Flatworld is essentially out of the box, you're able to be compliant and address regulatory compliance quickly easily and without the need of expensive experts. And that's what we give to our customers. So you're right. Our customer is not going to be um, individuals, yeah. as it were. Our customers are going to be people who are 
responsible to you for your individual data. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason it took such a long time, this is a huge problem. It's actually it was three huge problems that we had to solve at the same time or what wouldn't work. And even one of the fathers of the internet said it was impossible. And, and he was right in that, you know, he was, he was right in saying that it couldn't be done with conventional technology. But what he didn't envisage was that, or envision, is that we would break conventions. We persisted because we knew we were right and we knew it was important. So we broke the rules to make it happen. So essentially, if, if addressing COVID was the focus of 2020, addressing cyber and compliance risk is definitely going to be the focus of 2021. It's not just important. Yeah, wow. It's imperative and flat world is the technology to underpin this in both the public and private sector. And like when you, like you've had this vision for a long freaking time (laughs) when other people thought, you know, they didn't really see what you saw or why is she harping on about this? Why doesn't she just write another great book? Um, And you're out on the skinny branch. How did you hold your posture and continue with this vision? Remember the theme, stubborn, 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 stubborn. We knew we were right. We were on the skinny branch. And and in a way, you could say we're still on the skinny branch in Australia because Australia is really quite far behind with regards to uh, the rights of citizens to their their data and and, um, what can be done with it or not done with it. Um, When we started, there was... There was no IoT. People were just starting to use the cloud. And here, here are we talking about, well, there's going to be this digital economy and you're going to have to keep your data safe. And data is a critical asset. So you really need to be able to prove X, Y, and Z. And people would look at us and, I mean, you know, it started out with, you people are crazy. And then I guess after a few years, it went to, God, will you just shut up? Because we didn't stop talking about it. We didn't stop hmm writing about it we didn't stop um advocating for it and and you know it was it was hard it was lonely um we we um because we we self-funded all of this you know we 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 didn't have any um government organization underneath us saying let's spin you out we 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 were on our own but knew we were right, knew it was important. And it also really reflected the passion of the founders. So I, I you know, founded this with Michael, my, my husband, the code whisperer. And you know, he, come, he comes out of big tech and big business. And he knew this problem was huge and was gonna get bigger. I knew that it wouldn't make any difference if the solution was only available to the top 1%. So he not only had to do this huge problem solve, but he also had to make it accessible to the majority world. Otherwise, who cares? You know, you're just literally just another tool for, you know, the exclusives. It had to, un- it had to underpin the, the what you, what I, I think we've spoken about uh, when we initially chatted, it had to underpin this thing called the dates, the digital attention and collaboration economies. And that encompasses the majority world. A fully functioning digital economy 
is global and we all participate in it. So yeah, that was, um, that was well, well, you said something about why, like we need to care. Why do you care so much about this? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I'm, I'm, I see myself as a global citizen. First of all, mm. um, I believe in, um, empowering as many people as possible. Mm. And, you know, I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know, um, I, I, I know what it's like not to have access to stuff. Mm. Um, and I, I just don't think that's right. You know, maybe it's the Canadian in me. I don't know, but I really believe that there are fundamental human rights. And I do believe that, that being able to control the, the essence of yourself, capital S self, which is now also partially digital is, is something that, um, yeah, is an imperative. And it's interesting, you know, we started off by describing the six-year-old who wanted the movies yeah. in Barbados. And then, you know, it was like, we all deserve to have movies. And here we are again, like really fighting for everybody's access. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful. And like, I think it's really cool. It's like this kind of like full circle moment, you know, you know, here we are in AI or t deep tech um, solving. And, um, you know, I just want to say this whole conversation, like clearly you have books of knowledge in you. Um, but what I've really gotten is how your like fire for life sits inside technology. You know, I, I, I think in my view of what I view as not being in tech is going, I've not really seen how important it is to be an activist in this space to be global in this space, to care about people, to look out for people. And, and I love just this like cultural flavor that you've got. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. I never got how important, even like you said about women in AI, that those perspectives are, because if they're not there, just like a face can't be recognized, a voice can't be recognized. And I did, you know, like, yeah, I got it. Yeah, that's correct. So, and I got it because of your gift of being able to describe it. So like, I think you said that earlier about being able to take a story and have the words land for people, you know, and it be engaging. And I, that's what you've done today with your words, you know, verbal here. So, Hey, I just want to thank you. I know there's like a, a lot more, but I, I think we got the juice, you know, we just got that beginning of why we should care. So send us off with a doing in this area. Okay. Well, actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to send you off with a doing in a completely different area. Done. Okay. So, um, while Michael was writing code, as you know, I was writing books. Um, but the last book I did was something totally different. It had nothing to do with tech, nothing to do with the digital economy, what I realized was after living in Australia, I got, I got here about 11 years ago and nine <laughs> years later, I realized, wow, I'm not being an activist. I got, you know, the, the, there's the Australian disease, which is, I'm good, it, you know, the weather's fabulous. And I got so complacent. So I went looking for a charity 
And the charity is called Lou's Place. Uh, uh, and it is the oh. only, the only daytime drop-in center for women who are victims of domestic abuse and coercive control in Sydney. And it only fits 40 people right now. So they're wanting to move to bigger premises, understandably, given you know, the, the immensity of the problem. They are celebrating their 21st anniversary this year. And so what I did was um, collect some letters, 274 letters actually, from amazing women around the world, writing letters to their 21-year-old selves. And this has turned into a massive book with uh, exclusive artwork from uh, internationally acclaimed artist, Wendy Sharp. The letters come from, P I, 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 we have a message from Oprah. We have messages from astronauts. We have letters from um, comedians and, and, and corporate leaders, from, from scientists and, 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 oh gosh, artists, activists, actresses, um, Olympic athletes. They're, they're amazing. And there are also letters from women you may never have heard of before. Because um, remember, everybody has a story that's important to hear. So this book, Postcards from Tomorrow, is um, selling uh, really well, actually. Um, our Christmas oh. run actually sold out, which is amazing. Yeah, so we're, we're having to do, a, we're having to do a, a, a second printing, but it is still available on Amazon. Um, okay. But we're also going to be doing a, um, a push for the International Women's Day in March. So the do I'm asking yep. people to do is to go to www.postcardsfromtomorrow.com and yes. order a book. Now, what I would like you to do is order a book for March. And I will make sure that your book comes in. If you'd like it signed, we'll make sure it's signed. Um, yeah. But what we're also doing is offering corporates a really big discount if they do bulk orders. And we will print a message in there saying, uh, for instance, thanks to, for coming to our event to celebrate X or our, 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 our event to celebrate Y. And so you can actually, um, if you, all you need to do is order 50 for your organization and it could be a gift to any of your, um, for any of your events. So that's the do I'm asking. All the money goes to Lou's Place. Uh, so far we've raised uh, tens of thousands and we're looking to raise more. Uh, it's been a two year so project. Good. Yeah, and I, I really, you know, if, if there's any do, that would be the do for me. That would be. Well, I'm going to put that in the show notes for everyone that didn't catch the www dot, um, but it was postcardsfromtomorrow.com, I think. It is. But I will write it out there for people so they can just click on it and go do their do straight away. Because as we know that it's in the doing and the experience of life that we really grow. So um, thank you so much for reengaging in the community. Like, you know, fine tuning, sharpening your activist knife um, in order to continue to, you know, cut through the crap and, and really provide opportunities for everybody. Everybody deserves the movies, even six-year-olds. And now here we are, everybody deserves, you know, safe data and so much more. So thank you so much for today, Kim. I really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm, I really enjoyed it. I, I um. I commend you for what you're doing as well. I think you're you're actually fabulous at this, and I really, really, um, yeah, I can't believe I can't believe how much we got through. Actually, Woo, we did it! Stop! 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 
We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.